Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would open our ears to hear it and that you would change our lives through it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's been nearly 250 years since Jefferson penned those words. And from that day until now, those words have served as a kind of central conviction that has guided who we are and who we aspire to be as a nation. Unfortunately, while we Americans have long treasured those words, we haven't always acted as if they are true. Even as they signed their names to the Declaration of Independence, some of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Roger Sherman, Thomas Jefferson, they were deeply concerned by what seemed to them to be a tragic and inexplicable inconsistency at the heart of America. How could a nation that proclaims its belief in the fundamental right of all men to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, how could that nation deny those very same rights to its vast numbers of slaves? In 1785, Jefferson wrote a letter to his friend where he talked about this deep concern he felt and the future consequences Indeed, he said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. But Jefferson's words pale in comparison to those later uttered by the former slave Frederick Douglass. On July 5th, 1852, Douglass was invited to give a speech in Rochester, New York, and he chose as the theme of his address the topic of slavery in relation to the 4th of July. Now here's an excerpt from what he said. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. Now, those are pretty hard words. But they were not spoken by a man who had some kind of hatred for America or who rejected its founding principles. To the contrary, Douglas loved America. It was the country of his birth. And he believed strongly in the American ideals of liberty and equality. But like any good patriot, he refused to remain silent as he witnessed the willingness of so many Americans in antebellum America, as he witnessed their willingness to abide and tolerate the slave trade. And in so doing, 
actively deny the very fundamental principles that they so proudly proclaimed. Now, you might think that I'm really getting off topic here. You came to hear a sermon, and here I am just giving a lecture on slavery and the declaration, but I promise there is a point. You see, as I was reflecting on our reading from Romans chapter 6 that we heard a moment ago, as I was reflecting on that this week, it occurred to me that there are some real striking similarities between what the Apostle Paul is doing and saying in his letter and what Thomas Jefferson and later Frederick Douglass were doing and saying in their own day. Of course, he's not addressing the same issues. Paul's letter to the Romans isn't a statement about political rights or national independence. It's not a speech denouncing social evils. And yet, if you think about it, there are some notable parallels. Like Jefferson, Paul is, in fact, in Romans, he is making a declaration of freedom. And much like Douglas, in this passage in Romans chapter 6, he is denouncing hypocrisy. But beyond that, beyond declaring freedom and denouncing hypocrisy, Paul's doing something more. He's offering an invitation. He's inviting us to a new way of thinking and a new way of living. He's trying to tell us that we don't need to content ourselves with mere belief in liberty when instead we can experience real and genuine liberation. Now let me explain. So to begin with, what does it mean to say that Paul's making a declaration of freedom? I don't know if you've ever read Romans, but if you, if you picked it up and started in chapter 1, just started reading, you might pretty quickly come to the conclusion that Paul seems to be doing the complete opposite. After all, while Jefferson talks about men possessing unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Paul paints a picture of human existence that suggests that the story of every man and woman is in fact a story of misery, bondage, and death. Just think about his description of human history in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about how humans turn from their worship of God toward idolatry, and as a consequence, how they became foolish and ignorant and dominated by their own vices. They're full of envy, he says in Romans 1.29. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Doesn't exactly sound like a declaration of freedom. And then what does he say later on in Romans chapter 5 when he talks about how sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And death spread to all men because all sinned. The opening chapters of Romans, they give a very dark account of human history, an account that sounds very different from the optimistic language of Jefferson's declaration. And those after opening chapters, the Apostle Paul, he says nothing about the inherent right of every person to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. On the contrary, he says that every man and every woman is born into a condition of slavery and subjection enslaved to sin, subject to death. And yet, you know, for as dark as it is, for all this pessimism, Paul is just telling the truth. I think it's great. The, the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, he once said 
that the doctrine of original sin, this teaching, this claim that every person is born into a condition of sin and death. Niebuhr said that that doctrine is the one empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Do you want to know whether original sin is true? Just look around you. The evidence is everywhere. Or for that matter, just look within. But thankfully, that's not all that Paul has to say. He tells us that we're born as slaves, but he doesn't stop there. Because what Paul really wants to talk about in Romans, what he really wants to convey to these Christians is not really about bondage, it's about freedom. Yes, we're born into slavery, but the gospel, the good news of which Paul is a messenger and apostle, the gospel is that God has done something decisive about it. Because in the death of Jesus, Paul says, God has condemned sin in the flesh. And through his resurrection, he has overcome the power of death itself. And because of that, what is true of your life and my life, it's radically changed. For those who have been united to Jesus are no longer slaves. We have been set free, free from guilt, free from shame, free from sin's enslaving power, free from death's powerless threats. That's the message at the heart of the book of Romans. As he says in the passage we just read, we were crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, listen to this, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. That's Paul's declaration of freedom. It's what he wants these Roman Christians to know. It's what he wants us to know. But along with that, he's not just declaring our freedom to us, he's also denouncing hypocrisy. You notice how he begins this passage. Romans 6, verse 1, the question that he asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, before we move on to Paul's answer to this question, it's important to just acknowledge the reality that Christians do, in fact, quite often sin. And sin is something that every Christian will continue to wrestle with and every Christian will need to continue to ask forgiveness for as long as their life endures. On this side of heaven, there is no such thing as a sinless Christian. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that there should be no difference between our lives and the lives of those, the lives of those around us. Because we are those who have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him. With the result that as Paul says in verse four, with the result that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, so we too might what? So that we too might walk in newness of life. You know, this past year, the Barna Research Group, they did a survey on uh, nationwide asking about people's reasons for having skepticism and their doubts about Christianity. And the number one reason they found was people's negative past experiences within religious institutions. But you know what number two was? The reason that 80% of respondents gave as one of their primary reasons for doubting the truth of Christianity. It's Christian hypocrisy. It's the fact that Christians say one thing 
and do another. And you know, you might say, you might respond to that and say, well, people who accuse Christians of this kind of inordinate hypocrisy, they're really just being uncharitable in their assessment. Or that they're unfair, unfairly judging all Christians by the notorious misbehavior of a few. Or that it's unrealistic to hold Christians to some standard of moral perfection. I used to have this pastor and uh, one of his favorite lines, he would often say that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum of saints, which I thought was great. The church is a hospital for sinners. It's not some community of perfect people. And yet, with all of that being said, there is something tragic about Christian hypocrisy. And it's not just that we Christians try to impose standards on other people that we ourselves fail to meet. That's kind of offensive and it's annoying to people, but it's not particularly tragic. What makes Christian hypocrisy tragic is the same reason actually that the American slave trade was tragic. It's not because there's no other nation that had ever committed such atrocities. It's because America was meant to be different. America was founded as a nation that had this specific creed, this unassailable conviction in the fundamental equality and liberty of all people. In his presidential speeches, Ronald Reagan often liked to quote this line from the pilgrim leader, John Winthrop, who once Uh, 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 described the Massachusetts Bay Colony as a city set upon a hill. And Reagan loved that, and he used it a lot. And he often used it to talk about America's place and purpose in the world, that we are a shining city, a beacon of light, a magnet, as he put it in his farewell address, a magnet for all who must have freedom. That's why antebellum slavery was so tragic because it extinguished whatever light of freedom America was supposed to shine. That's also why it's tragic when Christians continue in sin. You know, uh, Reagan, he says that he got the line, city upon a hill, from Winthrop. But of course, you all know your Bibles, and you might be familiar with the fact that Winthrop did not coin that phrase. He borrowed it from someone else you know. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. The Apostle Paul says, you are those who have been delivered from the dominion of sin. So to that question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Jesus and Paul are in unanimous agreement. By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? So that's what Paul's doing in this letter. Paul is declaring to us our freedom. He is denouncing the temptation to hypocrisy but it's not all he's doing. And I think we would be deeply misunderstand Paul if you came away from this, reading this passage with this image of your mind of Paul with a beard and a very severe face wagging his finger at you and telling you 
that you better get your act together and stop being hypocritical. Paul isn't writing this letter to be judgmental and critical toward the Romans. He's writing because he wants to help them, to help us, so that we can know that we don't have to continue living and letting guilt and envy and fear and shame dictate our lives. Paul is trying to invite us to a better way of life, which sounds great, of course, but the big question is how? How do we embrace this new, wonderful way of life? How do we walk in newness of life? You know, later in the, in the letter, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says something very interesting. He says that we shouldn't be conformed to this world, but instead that we should be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And I've always found that phrase fascinating, by the renewal of your mind. And I think it's very indicative of how Paul goes about forming and discipling people. I mean, think about it. Here's Paul in his primary way of forming Christians. What does he do? Well, he gives speeches to people and he writes letters. That's what he does. He wants Christians to change their way of living and the way that he goes about it is he addresses their minds. He changes the way they think. That's what he's doing here in Romans chapter six. He doesn't want us to continue in sin. He wants to, us to walk in newness of life. So how does he go about it? Well, he goes about it by trying to change the way that we think. Most especially in this passage, he wants to change the way that we think about ourselves. Now, I, wanna, I want you to think about something for a second. So say you and I were in conversation and I asked you the question, who are you? That's kind of a weird, that's sort of an abstract question. But say we were talking and I said, tell me about yourself. Now, what would you say in response? And most likely what you do is you tell me some things about your past. You tell me about where you were born or where you grew up. You might tell me some things about accomplishments in your life or things that you're proud of, maybe where you went to school. Or you might tell me about what you do for work. You might tell me about hobbies you have. And maybe if you're one of those people who's into personality profiles, I'm not. I like to tell Rachel, I'm whatever number on the Enneagram doesn't fit at all in the personality profile. So stop trying to examine me. <laughs> but you know, some people are really into that. You might tell me about your Myers-Briggs or your Enneagram number. Now, all of those things, they all play a role in the way that we think about ourselves as well as a whole host of other things that I'm sure you would not voluntarily tell me. Like, what is it that you like and dislike about your body? Or what is it that you're ashamed of or that you regret? Now those things, they also play a very big role in how we think about ourselves. But what would you say if I asked you a different question? What if I didn't ask you, who are you? What if I asked you the question, who does Paul say that you are? I know nobody's ever asked you that question. Nobody's ever asked me that question, but let's go with it. Who does Paul say that you are? It seems like an odd question, but actually it gets to the heart of what Paul wants to say and how he wants to change the way that we think. This is something that he brings up again and again in his letters. Every letter he writes, he talks about this. Again and again, he wants 
Christians to change the way they think about who they are. And his answer to that question, frankly, has nothing to do with your accomplishments or your failures. It has nothing to do with where you were born or where you live or how you dress or what you've done. It has nothing to do with your college degree or what's on your resume or what kind of personality profile you have. According to Paul, none of that really answers the question of who you are. For Paul, there's only one thing, only one thing that you should use to define yourself, and that is the question, are you in Christ or are you not? Have you been buried with Christ and united to him in baptism or have you not? If you are in Christ, if you have been joined to him by faith, then your old self, as Paul calls it, your old self is dead. And all those things that used to matter so much to you, those things that you took pride in and those things that you felt ashamed about, none of it actually makes any difference to the question of who you are. That old self is dead. That's what Paul wants to say. So stop thinking that that's who you are. Instead, as he puts it in verse 11, instead consider yourselves, which is to say, think about yourself this way. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Well, as I, as I conclude, since I've talked about it a lot in this sermon, happy early 4th of July. Uh, you know, I, I think that... Um, this is a wonderful opportunity, the 4th of July, as we celebrate national independence, as we celebrate and give thanks for all the liberties that we enjoy. It's a wonderful question, time to, to ask the question, who are we? And who do we aspire to be as a country? And it's also a time to recommit ourselves to what we actually prayed for in a prayer earlier in this service, to re recommit ourselves to use the liberties we've been given and to exercise them in righteousness and peace. But on this 4th of July, whatever it is that you do, I think I'm going to go try to pick up a grill so that I can grill. But whatever you're going to do on the 4th of July, as you celebrate, don't forget that your life is defined by a deeper and even more profound freedom. You were born a slave you have been set free. May you and may I, by the grace of God, live as if that is true. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.